Hello again everyone and welcome to a very special New Year's Eve Hogmanay episode of the Reenactors Ramble in which this is episode 22 and today I'm joined by a friend of the podcast and founder of Normandy 44 Reenactment Association and everyone's favourite Scottish kit hog Dale Davidson. Dale it's a pleasure to have you back mate. Oh it's a pleasure to be back on although I'm not sure about the intro. <laughs> what would you prefer then? <laughs> oh I don't know I mean, it sounds like I'm a bit greedy to be buying kit which um, I don't know if that's true. Well, I think I'm addicted to buying kit, actually. Well, yeah, well, th- this episode is going to be about Dale's three sheds that he's got of equipment, but now we'll save that for a, a later date, definitely. Um, but yeah, thank you for taking some time out uh, from your New Year's Eve to catch up on, on the podcast and uh, have a bit of crack today. Um, you know, once again, it is another milestone in the year, which we can't celebrate uh, perhaps as traditionally as we, as we might be. So how will you be celebrating tonight yourself? Well, like most people, it's going to be quite quiet, actually. Um, I've got my kids um, who will be here, but that'll be it, unfortunately. Um, nothing else you can do. Well, nothing else you can do safely. Um, so even my parents who live in the property next door won't be visiting me um, because they're in their late 70s and it's just not worth the risk, to be honest with you. No, no definitely not. Strange one, isn't it? Yeah, I think I'll uh, I'll join you in a quiet one. I think uh, just get absolutely leathered, I reckon, and <laughs> kiss goodbye to the worst year. I think in in pretty much everybody's lives. I think for for the most part as well. But however, I must say that I was thinking about um, the similarities between the New Year's in in World War Two, and I don't know about yourself, but you know, whatever time of year it is, I'm always sort of looking back to wartime years and almost sort of you know comparatively looking at the experiences there. And you know, aside from there being a, a world war and I think there is a an, an air of sort of similarity between New Year in 2020 and in 1944. I think if you consider the general feelings and mood amongst the public, I think there's a similar narrative in that there is a feeling of hope and, you know, the worst is, is hopefully behind us and as much as there is still a lot of trouble ahead, um, hopefully, you know, the end of the this war, I guess in particular, um, is, is hopefully going to see its end in 2021. Yeah, I think it's um, it is comparable. I mean, it's the beginning of the end, hopefully. Um, and there is this not knowing how next year is going to pan out. Regarding, you know, I mean, obviously, are the numbers going to decrease? You know, are they going to get the um, um, the antidote sorted out, the vaccine sorted out? You know, mm. is what what events are going to take place? Where will we be allowed to travel? You know, how can we travel? Um, I mean, to be fair, I mean, we've got a few a few things booked next year, including a trip to Holland in September. So I'm hoping that um, by then everything there and here is um, almost back to normality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the big one. I think that's that's probably keeping uh, certainly you and I going, I think, is that that trip over to Holland and news to be there for the first time. So hopefully we, um, everything's back to normal, at least by then. But who knows, we might even have a, a VC day uh, this year, you know, to compare with V-Day, victory against COVID, hopefully <laughs> will be the day that we'll have this year. And, you know, maybe Boris can come out and have a little speech. We shall vaccinate in the fields and vaccinate in the streets and all this sort of stuff and, and get it rid of it. But anyway, on to today's topic of the episode, which isn't COVID or vaccinations or Dale's Sheds. Uh, today's episode is all about the basics for the British infantryman impression. Uh, and this is very much aimed at beginners. So if you're just starting out in the world or you've uh, you've been uh, reenacting on the German side or the Italian side or the Swedish or the American side uh, for most of your reenacting career and you're fancying uh, getting a little bit of a cup of tea going and doing the, the British side of things there, we're going to provide you with a little bit of a basic insight into the British infantryman impression. Um, we're not going to look at too many nuances in terms of officers um, and specialist sort of units. We're going to look at the very basic sort of infantry kit that you would need, um, I guess, from the BEF years uh, right up until the end of the war there as well. Yeah, I think um, probably we should start off by saying that, you know, we've not been doing the British side for that long, maybe, what, five years, something like that. Um, And to be fair, we've had a lot of help from a lot of good reenactors that have done it for a long, long time. So, obviously, we've dipped into their pool of knowledge. Um, To be honest, we know just one source, but multiple sources because sometimes you'll people will tell you something you think oh that's great and then somebody else will tell you the opposite so there's been a bit of research for our part well quite a lot of research but we've obviously relied heavily on those that we know and trust in the hobby 
Yeah. I mean, every, every day is a school day, right? And, you know, there's, there's probably going to be one or two disagreements with, uh, with any of our advice, I guess, given in this episode. And that's absolutely fine. You know, we're happy to be corrected on um, anything that we might not have wrong. But to the best of our um, basic knowledge and ability, then we'll, we'll look to pass that on to any beginners or, or any, uh, anybody looking to move into the British sector. And like you say, we've, we've only really been doing this five years, which sounds like a long time, but I think whilst you're also spinning, spinning the plates of other impressions, uh, within a group at the same time, be that RAF, be that, um, the Rangers impressions that we do, you know, I've got, I've been focused on US Army Air Force as well. So, you know, when you are spinning these reenacting plates, sometimes five years, isn't a huge, you know, huge amount of time really, when you're only looking at four or five events a year as well. So we're still very, very new to it um, and, and ever improving, but hopefully we can uh, do this justice for all the beginners out there. Oh, definitely. I mean, the uh, I think the, the initial thing for uh, new people to the hobby is obviously if they want to do a British impression, they need to understand certain things that the kit changes, uh, unlike a lot of other, well, to be honest with you, probably most countries do change, but a lot of this stuff stays standard in certain countries where it can change completely regarding, you know, equipment um, through the period uh, for other countries. Um, I mean, basically, we started out doing a BEF impression. Um, the critical thing we, when you're starting an impression, I would suggest is knowing where your goal is going to be. So if you're doing it because it's a member of the family who was in a particular regiment and you want to pay uh, homage to that, then obviously you want to try and do it as accurate as possible. There is a various levels that you can get involved in in the hobby from super accurate and serious to reasonably accurate and, you know, less serious. So someone who was serious would study the history, um, do their own research, and then um, take it for there. Um, regarding equipment, Probably, I don't know if you want to discuss the, the basics of what you need at this moment in time for, say, the BEF impression. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll start chronologically, a little bit similar to how we did with the uh, the US basics that we did before. So I think it's it's sensible to start at the, the beginning of the war. I mean, I, I, know, I think that the BEF, um, or the British Expeditionary Force, for anybody listening who isn't aware, um, is essentially the, the force that was uh, attempting to stem the, the German invasion of, of Poland, Belgium and, and France in the early part of uh, 1940 in particular, um, heading towards the re retreat of Dunkirk. It's probably a good place to start. There's not many BF um, reenactors out there. I think it's probably more of a hardcore area, I would say, in the reenactors world. You don't see many beginners sort of really going in, in that direction, but I think it's a good place to start uh, chronologically. Let's start at the early part of the war, early sorry, part of the war, and we'll move forward um, throughout the rest there as well. So yeah, let's, let's kick off in... Um, in, uh, so we're doing an impression for the BEF 3940 uh, in France over there. So the basic thing that we've got to start with, right, is you've got to have some clothing on your back there. And the the standard um, service dress that um, was that was part of the, the British Army up until 1938 has been replaced by the battle dress surge blouse initially. Yeah, definitely. And the, the, again, the key things when you're starting a hobby is you want a pair of boots, um, you want socks, you want a uniform, <laughs> and you want a cap. And then obviously you want a, a belt. So the very first things you start off, rather than... I've seen people try to buy every single piece of kit and equipment in the, the very first uh, weeks that they're collecting. It's just impossible, and you end up buying a load of junk um, because you're trying, obviously, on a budget, buy everything, which is impossible. So if I had to give anybody advice, I would say, look, rather than try and have the finished article done quickly, do it to a budget, but try and get the correct stuff and the best equipment you can possibly get. So, I mean, obviously, if you're a small chap and you're um, you're quite short, you, there's a higher chance you'll get an original battle dress um, jacket and trousers. Now, that would always be the preferred option, but unfortunately, as time's gone by, people are just larger. You know, they're not just, like, fatter, they're taller, you know, their feet are bigger, so the amount of original kit out there is getting thin on the ground, to be honest with you, especially in larger sizes, so... And I guess you, you're also facing that moral battle, I think, which is... It's becoming more prominent, I think, in, in recent years around the, the sustainability of wearing original kit as well is, is always up for question and debate, I think. 
Well, especially if you're doing combat stuff. I mean, if you're going to be running about a field and then digging holes and jumping in and out, I would be a bit loath to use um, an original garment, ultimately, because you're likely to damage it. If it's a reproduction, a quality reproduction, that would be a better option. But by, by all means, if you're just going to, if you're just going to a dance, there isn't a problem with really wearing a dress uniform. I mean, that's what they're designed for. Yeah, you know? definitely. And I've got I've, I've got like four original battle dresses in various patterns, and I'm always a little bit hesitant to wear them. You know, I've got some great reproductions there, and I always just think, well, you know, why not wear that and keep the others as museum pieces? But anyway, I think we'll we'll dive into some of the um the specifics of this equipment here, and and to make sure that people are getting things right. So, you know, th- with the BEF in in thirty nine and forty. Um, I think it's fair to say that two patterns of battle dress are very much merged in reenactorisms, we should say. Um, I think the the battle dress surge blouse is, is very much incorrectly referred to. And by myself as well, I will hold my hands up. I've often referred to this type of BD as a 37, 37 pattern blouse. And I feel like the uh, that 37 pattern blouse or a battle dress statement generally involves the 40 pattern and the battle dress surge blouse within this sort of world with the 37 pattern. And I think people don't realize the, the slight nuances between the two. Um, obviously, the battle dress surge blouse was a little bit earlier in uh, 1938, replacing the service dress. And it didn't have the, it had, had an unlined collar in there as well, which is a little bit itchy, but it was deemed to be a little bit smarter, especially by officers as well. Um, and the the forty pattern battle dress obviously came in in, in sort of late 1940. But we're really for B, for BEF we're looking at that battle dress surge blouse. We're looking at the unlined collar, right? Um, and that's what we're looking for really is that basic starting point. Well, the, the other thing as well, if you get the earliest jacket, there is a potential you can use that practically right through the war. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you get a late pattern jacket, well, you can only wear it you know late in the war. So um, if it obviously. If, for us doing BF stuff initially, you want to get the battle dress surge, um, blouse, and obviously the trousers. So while we're talking about the obviously trying to get the, the correct jacket and stuff, one of the key things is get a good quality set of battle dress uh, jacket and trousers. And we've had a, we've had various tries with different companies and whatever. And it's not that we're here to publicise various companies, but we either use original stuff or Panther Battle Dress. Um, I mean, Panther, the quality is just way better um, than some of the other examples out there who I won't actually mention, um, but part of saying that Panther's good and that's who we would <laughs> who we recommend. And to be honest with you, so would most quality reenactors. If they had to go for a reproduction, they're going to go for a pan. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's fair to say that um, the 40 pattern would still work, I guess, at a glance for, for a Dunkirk impression. You know, there is a little bit of a difference there, but by far and large, the pleated pocket is still there. The wire waist buckle is still there um, rather than the grip type, which is seen later in the war. So, you know, to the to the untrained eye, forty pattern battle dress and a, and a battle dress surge blouse very much appear to be the same thing from the off. Apart from that, that could be a little bit different. So you would get away with two there, and you are right that that battle dress is used throughout the war, uh, especially more in the forty pattern area there as well. And a lot of the officers did did um, did deem that sort of unlined collar to be a, a lot smarter than the lined collar as well. So that was seen sort of later on um, throughout the war quite a lot. Um, you, you see various pictures. I know we've been looking through. Um, some fantastic literature in the last couple of weeks and looking at lots of original pictures. And we've had lots of discussions about, um, you know, regimental. We, we, we've, we've often actually discussed, sorry to go on a tangent here about groups being uniform and groups being issued the same equipment. But what we seem to be seeing more often than not, you know, battalions, I know it's not necessarily an infantry battalion, um, 44 onwards, but the seventh Galloway battalion Kings on Scottish borders that we've obviously spent a lot of time researching recently have images as you know as late as 1943, as early 1944, uh, and there are group pictures of battalions and squads, companies with mixed battle dresses in formal regimental pictures. And I think that what that goes to show is that our sort of our, sometimes the thought process of everybody being exactly uniform, wearing the correct up to date pattern of battle dress or uniform, isn't always true. I would say no. I think I think the problem is that if you didn't have a a set of specific regulations. I think you open yourself up to people, a complete mix. I mean, mm-hmm. what I was going to say is that, you know, there's, there's certain bits of equipment where 
yes, there's examples of people like wearing a two-part set of long straps and, uh, for a BF impression, two-part construction. I've got one photograph, I think I've seen a guy in the Argyle and <laughs> Sutherland Highlanders yes. wearing that. So, yes, you could, if you're doing a BF impression, wear those kind of long straps, but stick to the standard. And the same yeah. way um, yeah. with Mark, Mark V and Mark VI gas mask bags, we know that both were seen, but pr- predominantly a Mark V is your better option because it's more prolific. So, mm-hmm. again, you could have a Mark VI, you could have a Mark V, but my feeling is that depending on the circumstances of the issue, so you're right, during the war, people's trousers wear out, they get damaged, they get replaced. There's certain things that that they won't be uniform on every single, you know, squad of guys. But if you're issued with, like, your denizens at the same time, they should be standard if you're in the, you know, if you're the same... Um, squad or regiment or platoon getting them at the same time. Why would they be ten different colours? You know, I mean, I know there's, I know, well, I know, I know there is differences in the colours, and it's difficult to see standards. But I just kind of get my head around how I see groups with like ten different helmet nets. You know, yeah, something like that would be very specific. You, you can see the battle dress, can't you? I think in. You know, you do read, if, if you read a lot of, of sort of history of regiments, you do read a lot about transfers between regiments and battalions. And you can see why something like the battle dress might be mixed up a little bit. But I think certainly, like you mentioned there, when you're getting into um, specifics like helmet nets and, and, and denizens, they should be very much similar there. But I think we've identified the, the battle dress. Obviously, you're looking for a battle dress surge blouse uh, for that early pattern for BEF there as well. Um, so the shirt as well, Dale, do you want to elaborate a little bit on what, what shirt they might need underneath that battle dress? I don't want to sound horrible either, but about mentioning companies. But again, the, the Panther do a deal with a shirt, and Panther shirts are good. So you want to call it a shirt, flannel shirt. The um, underwear now, again, <laughs> you can get original underwear, and I've got quite a few examples of original underwear. But I'd bet my bottom dollar that most people in the hobby don't wear their original undercrackers. No, I'm I'm not one of those people. I just, I, yeah, I'm. Come on, that's getting a little bit excessive. Well, for me. I, I do, well, I've, got, I've, got, I've got loads of examples of like, getting them up the stair, but I am loath to to wear them. Um, I suppose if I had to for a specific purpose, I will wear them. Um, you know, but generally, these things are getting scarcer as well. You know, and it's not like at Christmas, every, every Christmas is going to come round and one of your relatives is going to give you a, a, new, pair, a new pair of World War II. Um, <laughs> undercrackers and a, and a yeah. pair of World War II socks. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the enlisted man as well, the, the infantryman, you generally got that battle dress buttoned up to the top. You know, I even know a lot of reenactors that don't even own a, a you know a, a shirt to go underneath that because it's never it what well, it's rarely seen. I think in in, uh, in in images as well. So so we've got the shirt there as well. You want um you want a collarless shirt there. Um, so we've got the battle dress there. What have we got on our feet, Dale? Well. Ammo, your standard ammo boots now, again, if you can find an original pair, fine. Um, I mean, the standard a, a ammo boot didn't really change for a long period. So, you know, but latter, latter day ones, they like double up on the soles, they um, cover them in polish. You know, it's almost like they're varnished. So if you can get an earlier pair, great. If you want a good pair, but they're expensive, you would probably go to William Lennon, who actually made them during the war. Mm-hmm. Really difficult to get hold of now. You know, there doesn't seem to be a, I mean, I might yeah. be wrong if anyone can point this in the right direction. There doesn't seem to be a sort of William Lennon site to go to and purchase from. I don't know if he sells wholesale through. There used to be, but I mean, I think there was something like, uh, well, over a couple of hundred quid for a pair of boots. It's all due to your budget. Yeah, and like you said, for the beginner, you know, you, you, can, you can get a good pair of ammo boots right up until probably the late 70s. I think it's probably important just to note as well for, for any beginners out there that you should be looking for a pair, um, ideally with a front and rear um, steel plate on the, the torn heel. And you should ideally be looking for the correct round studs and not the sort of parade three bolt studs that you find in sort of guards units post-war. Um, and, you know, and guards units are generally a bit thicker on the, on the toe as well. They're a big, big, big thicker boot. Um, but it is worth saying that, you know, if, if you find a, a decent pair of 1950s, uh, ammo boots, which are the correct shape, and we could probably do a little bit of a post on that correct shape because they're a little bit different. They're, they're quite skinny around the leg, and um, they're not too bulbous on the toe and whatnot. 
Um, but you can put the studs in yourself. You can get them re-studded. You can get the re- new plates put on there. So you don't need something. If you, if you find a good pair of boots, you've just got rusty plates and it's missing some studs, that's fine. You can buy new ones. You can take them to any decent cobblers and you can get those remade. But like you said, ammo boots. I mean, I've picked some 1949 dated ones up for as little as, I think they were 10 quid or 15 quid. So, you know, you can find bargains out there. Um, I think you've got to remember though that the studs, the, the amount of studs vary from obviously during the war. So early in the war, they had more studs in each boot. So I think it was 26 in each boot in uh, early period. So if you're doing BEF, you're ideally on 26 studs in each boot. Um, for some bizarre reason, the boots that I've got, which are original, officers ones, um, and they're beaver skin, they have 107 studs in each boot. Um, as you can imagine, it's quite, it's quite, it's quite. Well, to be fair, it's, it, it makes it um, difficult to walk, especially on the cobbles. Yeah, uh, yeah. but, but people hear you coming, which is uh, one good thing. I think later in the war, I'll just say, I think later in the war, I think it was thirteen studs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was which is your, your your sort of circle ones, which you can just hammer into the bottom as well. And for any beginners out there, again, you know those boots. Be careful when you're walking in them; they're not ideal for running down hills or on any sort of pavement. So, God, I. I if someone could enlighten me again, why why ammo boots were used in, in urban environments, you know, please enlighten me because I'm still yet to well, I think figure out. To, to, <laughs> to be fair, they're actually great for cross country, you know, because they give you a grip on it. I mean, they probably they probably didn't foresee that you'd be fighting in towns most of the time because ultimately, you know, probably most actions are in the countryside or round. I mean, you, you will have a mixture of both, um, but there'd be a reasoning or a rationale um, for having them, plus the wear on the boot as well. If you're actually doing a lot of marching, leather leather doesn't last long. If you're walking on it, I mean, you'll quickly wear down your heels and your soles very quickly. Um, so we've got the uh, we've got the boots there. Next on top, we've got the anklets, which are going on top of the boots there. So for BEF, uh, we're generally looking for the canvas anklets, and we're looking for the brass ends uh, on those as with well. The brass, Later on, right, with the, with yeah, the canvas yeah, straps. Yeah. So canvas straps brass ends and while we're here talking about um, anklets they should ideally be the same color as your belt and your webbing not all your webbing but most of your webbing um exactly that yeah which you should generally do because i mean i guess being on on parade or uh whatever it might be that would have been part of the uh the uniform regulations to make sure that those were the same colors and they were blank at the same time and all that sort but certainly certainly for your belt you know your belt and uh, and your anklet should be literally the same tone Oh, definitely, and I would suggest your uh, your long straps. Um, to be fair, most of your kit, you know, I mean, there's certain add-on bits of kit that you get um, that you wouldn't. I mean, you wouldn't blanco your gas mask bag because obviously it, it, it's got to be breathe. It's got to be breathable to a degree because the filter's sitting in there. So, I mean, although I have seen people doing it, um, but literally, your your all your normal standard small pack um, water bottle carrier, your anklets, your belt, your long straps, uh, your left and right straps, they should all be um, the same colour as far as I'm concerned. Definitely. And anklet wise, you know, those, those brass ends do make a difference to, uh, to, to the, to that BF impression, you know, later in the war, those brass tips were, were left behind in, in favour of austerity. Um, you know, obviously trying to keep some of that brass there for shells or whatever else it might be used for. Um, so make sure that you do have those brass tips on. They're a little bit more difficult to find. Stay away from leather straps again. That's no good for that time period either. It's very, very specific of uh, what you want there as well. So, so we've got those anklets there as well. It's probably right to touch on headwear, I guess, at this point before webbing. So, you know, from a non-combat point of view, we've we've got that side cap. We've got the the forage cap um, there, which would just have your, your regimental cap badge um, on the left-hand side as well at the front. Yeah, well, obviously you've got. Uh, I mean, when we were doing it, we were doing Scottish regiments, so it would be a tamishanter for us. Um, so it would be on the, the left, the badge, um, and uh, also the uh, Glengarry. Although literally, it's like to be a tamishanter rather than a Glengarry because that mo- tends to be more behind the lines. And it's it's important, you know, we're not looking for barriers at this stage. We're not looking at general service caps. Uh, we're looking purely at side caps, forage caps, and, and obviously the uh, the Scots versions of the caps that you just mentioned there as well. Um, and I guess if we come into the more combat world, we are wearing the Mark II tin helmet, otherwise known as the Brody Helmet II, uh, which was brought in in 1938. We've still got that Mark I liner, right? Yeah, with the oval 
pad in the in the in the top of it. Um, I mean, to be fair, I mean, although most people don't actually see them, we had that as standard within the group, so we made sure that the they were all early pattern helmets. So they were all Mark II helmets, but we Mark I liners. Um, again, the colour is also pivotal, um, and I think we settled on the colour from Old Time Design, who do a specifically, it is a brown standard military colour, but it's one that they've actually uh, researched quite uh, deeply, and they've got a good match to the originals. So we use Old Time Design for the... Um, Spray, which again, because it's a spray, it makes it a lot easier to actually, you know, rub down the helmet and, and then quickly spray it. Definitely. And, and the, the Mark Tutin helmet, I mean, not that you would notice, but it does have a non-magnetic ring um, so that the wearer could use a compass as well in the field. So that was one of the differences to the the Mark II helmet there as well. So that's a really important one. We don't want to be looking at Mark III turtle helmet to the stage. We're looking at that Mark II helmet, which is very important there. Um, and then moving swiftly on, uh, we're into the famous 37 pattern webbing. Um, and the idea of canvas, you know, came in at the start of the 20th century um, before World War One, with the idea that it was much cheaper to produce and quicker to, quicker and easier to produce en masse, um, saving a lot of money as well. And obviously with the idea of Blanco, it could be uh, uh, very versatile for different theatres of war as well. So so coming into that 37 pattern in, in 1939, 1940, um, do you want to talk us through that, Dale? Well, literally a lot of the web you'll be able to use right from... That if it's an early early type, you could use it straight through. So small pack, basically quite standard all the way through the war. Little changes apart from the colour of the blanco. Standard belt, just your thirty-seven part and standard belt again. Very little changes um, up until practically I think it was the fifties that they started to slightly change it. Fifty-eight pattern was was that the next lot? I think it was 58 pattern, but I mean, to yeah, be yeah. honest with you, even then, the changes in a lot of this stuff was was uh, minimal. minimal. Um, the uh, We've already mentioned the long straps. Now, obviously, these are constructed in different ways. There's one pup type where it's just one complete weave from top to bottom, and there isn't any, uh, there isn't any separate sections of webbing sewn together. So early on, you'd be looking for the one-piece construction, um, although, as I already touched on, there is a photograph of a guy uh, just to, to, to stir things up um, who was in, a, I think it was St. Valerie, the photograph was taken, but literally he's got a two-piece construction long strap. But again, it's the it's the rarity factor. For every one photograph like that, there's 50 photographs with a single-piece construction. So if you go to an early period, Try and get the single period. Um, skeleton type uh, water bottle carrier. Again, that should be blankoed. Ideally, you want a blue enamel water bottle. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good detail. I've noticed quite a lot, actually, that the, the, the Mark 7 water bottle um, was initially designed to be carried in the haversack. So, you know, I, I do see some BF reenactors actually doing that, keeping it in that haversack, but more commonly, as you mentioned there, the skeleton carrier. Obviously, an original blue enamel water bottle is very expensive. Um, so, a wee tip: if you can find an RAF water bottle, um, which are often blue enamel, you can actually change the covers. So, you can buy reproduction covers um, of the proper type. So, again, it's just that extra detail that you see um, in early impressions. Uh, so, we've got, the, we've got the small pack. Yeah, and I've seen the small pack. You've got the, the the rolled gas cape sort of sticking out the top of that. Uh, small oh God, pack as gas well. capes! God, we we actually mm. go re- reproduction ones, but God Almighty, these stuff. What price glory? What price glory have a really good? Uh, that's probably the best one on the market at the moment. Seemingly they've well, that's where we got our ones from five years ago. But seemingly they've got away with making it less smelly stench. Yeah, because we <laughs> we literally had them hanging outside for like a week. Mm. Um, getting battered with the raid to try and get rid of the smell, and they just stunk, stunk like a skunk's feet. Uh, they were absolutely <laughs> stinking. So, so uh, I believe they've improved that now. So, you want your gas yeah. cape obviously rolled up, yeah, yeah, and obviously tied up on top of the uh, what round the top of your shoulders and at your um, yeah. We, we won't go pack. too much into the the small pack contents because we could do a full bloody episode on that. I think, but oh, we'll, no, we'll just say. You know, you got your small pack there with your L straps there as well. So your, your L straps will, will attach it to the front of your ammo pouches or I'll allow you to wear that as a bit of a rucksack, which brings us nicely onto the ammo pouches um, for which you will want the Mark One, the sacred, the the holy Mark One ammo pouches, which are rarer than hen's teeth to try and find these days. Um, 
bit of a difference to the Mark the Mark II and the Mark III pouches later on down the line. They do sit differently in a slightly different position. Um, they're a smaller design as well, designed to hold three mags for their for the Bren gun as well. Oh, they were very much known as the Bren gun auxiliary uh, ammunition pouch there as well. Um, so Mark I, really important. Don't get a Mark III. It will be blindingly obvious to, to any sort of reenactor. It's just, it's just where it sits. Obviously, the, obviously the shape's slightly changed, but the um, mm-hmm. it's the positioning of the hooks on the back which make it sit in a different position. So, yeah, if you want your Mark I uh, pouches, uh, most people probably don't bother, but we do. Yeah, and as a note on, um, on, on on pouches as well, you you will probably come across Mark One pouches quite regularly, but you will make the mistake of buying auxiliary pouches. Now, an auxiliary pouch is generally a pouch which doesn't fasten to the belt and will fasten to a strap which will just go around your neck and could be used as spare ammunition. I've made the occasion of buying Mark One pouches without looking at the backs and just getting really excited at seeing them being a little bit cheaper on eBay, buying a couple of sets of them, them arriving and realising that they're actually auxiliary pouches. So, you know, auxiliary pouches can still be used. Um, I've heard a lot that they weren't generally Blanco because you would just have them around your neck and then fling them away again. I don't know how true that that might be. Um, so, you know, again, if you want auxiliary pouches, that's fine, but they need to mark one again. But do make sure that if you are buying them to go on your belt, that they do have the attachment to go onto the belt and that they're not just auxiliary pouches as well because they will be a fair bit cheaper. Oh, definitely. The uh, Of course, obviously, you need a frog for your bayonet, which will also be webbing. Yes, and it's obviously important that we need that um, the correct frog for the 1907 bayonet there, which is the sort of longer World War One bayonet type. You know, and we don't want that small pig stick type there. It's got to be a slightly different version. Definitely. Um, so water bottle, bayonet, um, small pack, long straps, belt, anklets. Just on the long straps there as well, it's probably important to just know, again, just a, a variation in terminology, um, cross straps is another term used. So, you know, don't think that a long strap and a cross strap are two different items there. They're very much the same item, but you will see different terminology used for that as well, just to look out for if you are searching through eBay. Off I think, you know, I think the problem is because I'm, I'm six feet two, so they've always got to be long straps for me, which is the straps, <laughs> which is the cross straps marked long. So, yeah. and to be fair, yeah. most people, most people would need a long strap as opposed mm-hmm. to um, a standard you know, short strap, unless you were really, really, really small. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, entrenching tool as well is important to note. This is the, the early type square <laughs> shovel. It isn't It isn't the separated one that you will see generally. You, in very, rarely, you, you very rarely see them. I mean, I mean, obviously we were hunting for them when we um, first started the impression and people were just saying, look, why are you even bothering? You never see them. And, you know, in reality, you, you didn't see them in use. So, again, it's if you've got one, then fine, but... I literally, it wouldn't be a pivotal in your impression. Yeah, definitely. Especially, you know, in, in the BEF, these these people were on the move so quickly that there wasn't necessarily the time to dig in as much when you were retreating so quickly. So um, that was likely, I mean, especially because they're quite cumbersome objects and not, they're not fold away items that you see later in the war fastened onto the back of the belt. They're very much sort of getting in the way as you're running, banging off the back of your legs. So it's not the kind of item that everybody would have would have you know really been keen to keep hold on in a in a in a very much a fast lightning paced retreat there as well. I think it's really important to note on Blanco, right? For that, so we've got all of that webbing there, but we don't want to be walking out into the field in its natural sort of sandy coloured tan state there because we would have a Blanco on uh, on this uh, webbing you, there. And, and we did. I was going to say we had a we had a massive discussion on Blanco when we first started actually, mm. and uh, on, on uh, not even so much the colour. Because we know it should be the pea green, um, I think Soldier Fortune call it ninety uh, seven liquid blanco. Yeah, they call it's, it right. Uh, yeah, khaki green ninety seven, which I think which the official is description KG, is light I think green. It's, it's well, I think it's number ninety seven kg medium. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is again, it's uh, I think the light green, which is I know it sounds a bit bizarre. I think that's one hundred three. Um, mm-hmm. Although it, I know it looks really light when you put it on your. Um, you put it on your weapon, but basically we had a whole discussion regarding the Blanco and various colour tests and various things. And uh, a friend of mine um, who was just so anti the fact that I was using liquid Blanco um, did a test with some original um, pockets of uh, Blanco that he had, uh, various samples, original samples. And, you know, he actually apologised and said, you know something, there's no discernible difference between the original and the liquid blanco from Soldier of Fortune. Um, and to be honest with you, if you put it on properly, you never have a problem with it. It doesn't come off. If you do it right. And I think the other debate, I think, which rages around blanco as well is you are very much relying on, you know, scarce original pieces of equipment, which have seen 80 years worth of wear since 1940. And I think 
largely the imagery that you will see from 1940 is colorized and it is absolutely nigh and impossible to compare you know a, a daylight look, looking at some uh blanco equipment in daylight to colorize pictures you know it's, it's very 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 difficult so i think there is always going to be a debate around that but I, i'm fairly satisfied i think that that kg 97 in its liquid format i think still works as, as a very easy reenactor friendly uh, application of blanco well do you know as you know i do have a few bits of weapon in my collection Really? <laughs> well, a few a few boxes. So I'll, I have to be honest with you. I've I've got original examples of most of the colours of Blanco you're never likely to see. So mm-hmm. I'm quite happy with that um, particular one. I should say that mm-hmm. I put it on with a stencil brush, which makes it a lot easier to actually apply. Yeah, there's, um, there's various. I mean, I was taught by a grandfather who who served in national service who who was taught by his uncles who were in the war that they they used a sponge apparently and, and there's no right or wrong way some people use a toothbrush it seems very much to personal preference I've, I've sort of used a sponge probably just out of a um you know a loyal thing to my granddad doing it the same way but like you said you use a stencil brush there seems to be a lot of different sort of techniques to, to applying it as well what we've not touched on though is one of the things is because obviously with the bef period these guys had nothing but time so I would expect that all the brass would be clean on the weapon, mm-hmm. right? I mean, obviously, oh, late prof- in the war, professional people soldiers, combat, well, right? right? Well, they're, they're bored. I mean, they're sitting in, in positions and marching all day and just try to keep the boredom away when they're on um, when they're in defensive positions in France. So I would imagine that it's highly likely that things like cleaning the brass and stuff like that would mm-hmm. have been upheld well let's like we mentioned let's remember the, these are professional soldiers you know these these aren't people that have been uh, conscripted uh, you know uh, that in that way these are professional soldiers and let's also not forget that um you know as the as the phony war as it was called was was, was rife you would have a lot of these soldiers still in in the uk so you know you might be able to do a 1940 impression or early 1940 impression still be in the uk or england obviously as it was probably known back then um, so I think you're right, that brush should be cleaner. I mean, I think we, we do that anyway, but, um, I think the last thing that we haven't really touched on too much there is a respirator. I think you touched earlier on the, the Mark V being the, uh, the preference well, the Mark there. Right? The, I think- the, 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 the one you would, I mean, ideally it's the one you want a Mark V, um, because it's obviously earlier than, well, I say it's earlier than the Mark VI. I've actually seen early examples of Mark VI and I've mm-hmm. seen a, a later example yeah, of Mark yeah. V, so it can be confusing, but I think, if you were starting out, try and get a Mark V. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't usually say this, but you can get reproductions of a Mark V from Soldier of Fortune, which I believe, although I don't have one because I've got quite a few originals there, I believe they're actually pretty acceptable. Yeah, I've got one. And in comparison with the original, obviously the colour is a difference there. But but let's not also forget that if, you know, I, I don't like bright, luminous, high-vis webbing, but... This, these these pieces of equipment would have looked relatively new anyway. So, you know, if you stick one of those outside for a couple of weeks and give it a little bit of wear, then they, they well, sometimes say, do look pretty is, good. Th- this is a problem. If you've got a, a, a sun-bleached respirator, you know, that's maybe 75-year-old, you know, and then you get something that looks quite fresh from Soldier of Fortune, it's difficult to say that that's wrong when, you know, unless you've had one sealed in a vacuum for 75, 80 years, you can't compare them like for like, yeah. can you? And the, the telltale signs of the Mark V respirators, because it's a minefield. People out there, I remember when I was looking at gas mask bags and people will be thinking, what is the difference? I think the telltale signs, the, the holes on the bottom of the Mark V bag, is, is it three versus two holes, I think, on a yeah, three holes on a Mark V respirator? And, and it's a, f- a flaps as well. There's, a, yeah. there's only one yeah. flap on a Mark V. And the uh, and very much the, the brass um, sort of the holders where you, put the, you fasten the straps to as well, they'll be brass generally. Um, was later in the war they were were they galvanized steel or nickel or something oh, like that I mean it is, it is, a, mine, it is a minefield for people yeah. who um, I, I mean there's people that are, that are lucky enough there is people out there who are experts on every single facet of living history so you'll have people that will be able to tell you every nuance regarding a water bottle there'll be ones that will be able to tell you about the water bottle carriers and specific times and manufacturers and dates and, and these people I mean God love them but I mean Let's try and keep it. Let's try and keep it as simple as possible for the yeah, new yeah, recruits because they yeah. will be absolutely demented if they go down that rabbit hole. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess just on respirators as well, you'd be looking for a red or a ten, uh, tan canister filter with an early date on that. And that was mostly seen with the, the tan coloured mask as well. You, you do see the odd rubber dated one, but you're very much looking at a tan coloured mask there as well with a red quite, or quite tan a lot canister. Of, um, quite a lot of 37 dated ones kicking about with a brown canister. Um, which is yeah, that's what I started getting at with the, the, the tan, the tan, that brownie tanny sort of colour. Yeah, you do see a red Aye. as well, but it was mostly, I think I've got three and, and two of them are a tan. One's red, which was 39, I think, or 40. But um so yeah mostly those colors there as well and, and i guess moving lastly onto onto weapons as well yeah you want the old uh, lovely lee enfield number one mark three um to be to be fair i've actually got two uh which i was lucky because one's a 39 dated one um although i don't use it because i'm an officer uh, usually um i use a 38 um enfield pistol um although there's options here you could get a webley um, if you're going to get a Bren, make sure it's a Mark One. Yep. Um, yeah, and we don't want any uh, Lithgowers there either, do we? No, 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 no. So try and keep to the to the uh, British manufacturers. Try and get make sure that the um, it's an early date. I mean, to be fair, they still made. Um, I mean, I've had a few later uh, number threes. I think they were Indian actually. Uh, sorry, number one's Mark Threes. Um, Brens again, as I say, you really want a Mark One. Although there's various other weapons that they used, um, uh, larger, heavier weapons, which we don't actually go and we just go into the personal weapons. And if you do get a, a number one Mark Three, try and make sure that it does this. I'm I'm sitting too far away from mine to go and reach it, but mine's is. Uh, yeah, I, like, I do like my um, nice ones. sound, that isn't it? It's a loving, lovely oh. sound. Um, yeah, lovely sound. Favorite weapon there, I think that I've got in there. I think mine's thirty-eight. That one, but so that is that is the BF in a, in a bit of a nutshell. There, we've we've raced through in about sort of forty minutes there quickly. So um, that's the BF, and obviously then um, those troops are retreating home. We've all seen the the various uh, adaptations of Dunkirk, be that the uh, the newer 2017 version, I think. Um, and we've seen the the older version as well there. Um, so the troops come home there. And we're not really going to touch on um, North Africa too much or the Mediterranean too much at this stage either. We're going to try and keep it very, very sort of basic and maybe later date we can uh, do a bit of a special on North Africa and the Mediterranean there as well. So now we're going to focus on this period between um, 41 and 44 really there as well. And the slight differences there. So if we go back to that, that battle dress and we re revisit that, we are now seeing the 40 pattern, which, as we mentioned, is um, relatively similar to the battle dress serge blouse. Um, but the differences are we have the lining inside the collar. There's a slightly different cut, which is cut a little bit thinner, uh, a bit more slim than the uh, the battle dress serge blouse as well. And that's came in um, late 1940. I think it was July that's came in. And then we've also seen the introduction of the uh, the 40 pattern austerity blouse, which is which is very much referred to as the 40 pattern blouse there as well um sometimes labeled as a 42 pattern because it was introduced in in 1942 we've got a few differences there the um the fly front on the buttons was removed hence the name austerity which then exposed the buttons down the central fastening areas in the pockets we've lost the pleated pocket as well we've gone to a flatter pocket there too and we've lost one of the inside pockets as well and plastic buttons were introduced instead of brass buttons so you know this part part of the war it's all about austerity. It's about mass volume. It's about losing some of the, I guess, the uh, terminology of luxuries, as such as brass buttons there, such as the neatness of a of a covered pocket as well. Um, so that's that's the major difference, would we say, to the battle dress at this stage? Oh, definitely. I mean, one of the things we didn't mention regarding BEF, but it has a relevance to what we're discussing now, is even things like mess tins. Um, you know, a BEF, proper early BEF mess tin would probably be about, oh, I don't know, what do they go for now? Hundred quid? Don't I'll start crying. <laughs> hundred quid or maybe a hundred quid, whereas one that's one that's a year <laughs> later is worth like fifteen yeah. quid. I've I've only managed to find one tin from nineteen forty. I'm still I'm still waiting for the other side of the tin to make up the two mess tins there. You know, it's absolutely oh, ludicrous. Terrible, like. Yeah, so we've got that so we've got that battle dress there, which has changed. You 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 do see people wearing jerkins at this stage as well, leather jerkins, you know. We won't go too much into that, but that is an option as well at this stage there um the trousers have changed a little bit as well like we said you've um there's no more ankle tabs on the trousers as well um so the the earlier pattern of trousers did have that ankle tab on there to bring them in nicely and we don't have that boots exactly the same right there's no changes there 
again, standard. <coughs> Most of the weapon, again, would remain standard. And you still see Mark IIs at that um, period as well. Although for D-Day, you start to see uh, Mark III turtle helmets appearing. So, um, yeah, yeah. We've got that used. I mean, that was the, the Mark III helmet was was brought in around forty four. Sometimes again referred to as the forty four pattern helmet. Turtle helmets is a funny one because obviously during the war it was never really dubbed the turtle. It seems to be more of a, a post war reenactorism sort of historical thing there as well. But um, I yeah, I mean, you honest. do you do see that Mark II helmet used throughout the whole of the war. You know, even though it was replaced by um, that, that Mark III helmet, there you do see that for, that that Mark II helmet used still on D Day and, and and used beyond as well to leave through North Africa as well so that Mark II helmet is still acceptable I would say right until sort of the end of the war really Oh definitely The um, I mean one of the things we never, we never mentioned earlier on is obviously when we talked about weapons Stens um, obviously that's a whole different ball game as well regarding Stens and the period that they come in um, but we can maybe touch on that later yeah, definitely. And anklets, you know, we touched on that earlier. Um, at this stage, you you don't want to be looking for those brass ends. As we mentioned, this period is all about austerity. Those brass ends are a luxury that we just could not afford. So we lost the brass ends. So then you'll you be finding a lot of examples out there from a beginner of uh, canvas um, anklets without the um, without the brass tips on. They're absolutely fine. You will also start to see leather, um, leather straps on anklets, I believe, sort of late 43 onwards. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Dale, but you do see that a lot in sort of 44. I was going to see if you see um, anklets that just don't have the brass but have the uh, the canvas uh, straps. They generally, I think, are Indian pattern or Indian mm. uh, made. So ideally, you'd either want the leather ended. I don't mm-hmm. know exactly when they came in. To be honest with you, the um, but obviously for for a later or a mid-war impression, they're ideal because I think the brass ones after um, the nineteen well nineteen forty. They just obviously didn't have them. They just mm-hmm. they had to re- they had to rearm the entire army basically because everything they had was gone basically yeah, yeah, left left behind. Yeah, exactly. You know, and obviously um, austerity, so leather's easy to replace the, as opposed mm-hmm. to the. Yeah, and we've uh, so we touched on headwear there as well. So we've touched on that helmet. The Mark II helmet is still around. You can still wear that. The the turtle helmets are obviously um, very very popular in the majority in D Day as well. Um, and I guess in terms of non-combat headwear, um, that forage cap is beginning, well, it's still around and it's replaced by the general service cap. You will see that prevalently from the 44 day onwards uh, around from there. I'm not exactly sure the exact date that came in, um, but that general service cap um, was brought in. Or, or Caps Ridiculous, I think, is the other name. Um, very much touted <laughs> around for, for that cap as well. I've never found a, a great way of wearing one of those yet. It's, uh, they always look a little bit strange. And obviously you've got the beret coming in for the the armoured forces um, and the tank regiments, uh, the armoured corps, sorry, in the tank regiments. And we've also got the the airborne troops wearing berets and the commando troops are wearing their own uh, tone of berets from dark green to black into the the famous uh, claret or, or burgundy for, for the airborne forces as well. Definitely. I mean, I think uh, if I had to wear... One, I think I would go for the berry. It seems a lot more practical than the general service cap or the Tama Shanner, mm-hmm. um, to mm-hmm. be fair. And some of the Tama Shanners look like dustbin lids. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and some of the reproductions are almost bigger than dustbin lids. <laughs> there are some horrific, horrific GS caps around. Uh, uh, do you know, there's, a, there's a group, I'm not going to name them, but I, I, I very much wanted to, to just sort of... Do it, do know. it. <laughs> no, I won't. I won't name them. But there was, the, yeah, there was, there was a picture of a, an infantry regiment um, that were representing a an infantry regiment close to my heart, um, and there was some images of the group together uh, with some really bad battle dresses and terrible copies of the GS caps there. And I, get, I always think, get, get. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that make them, but I think with GS caps, I think original is probably the only way to go for me there. Um, there's a lot of reproductions that are just terrible out there. Do you know what really? St- uh, maybe it's because I'm Scottish, but I, I really, it really grinds my gears when uh, I see people, especially from abroad, doing a terrible Bonnie Prince Charlie version of a Scottish soldier with a cap stiffener that, that looks like a steering wheel. You know, and they just have feathers everywhere, and you know the, the kilts are, are, are 
either too short or too long, and you know they're wearing things they would. I mean, you, you wouldn't wear a kilt in combat. They're wearing battle dress and kilts, and it just it just looks ridiculous. Again, but again, they've, they've seen they've seen one image of a guy leaning over a jeep in on and wearing a kilt, oh. and that that then is the you know that is the standard right to go to, and it's it, again it's using that one image over the other ten thousand images that are out well, there. Well, you know, actually, in that in that image is actually two guys wearing kilts. There's a guy at the left mm. with a with a sten. I think it's a Mark II sten actually. Um, unfortunately, mm. the guy on the the right, um, I think it's Captain. I can't remember his name. He was a glider pilot, I believe, who drowned on the. Um, Trying to cross yeah, yeah. the uh, the Rhine, um, when they were trying to get back, but ultimately the uh, I just hate that kind of you know oh, look. I'm doing Scottish, and it's just it's just overdone. It, just keep it simple with a basic <laughs> kit and a Tammy shirt. I know something that's that just <laughs> looks like look at me. I'm born yeah, in Prince Charlie. Exactly. <laughs> you know, um, this is just again through that that forty one to forty four period. There, if we're looking at. Webbing, the 37 pattern remains, that small pack isn't changing, the large pack isn't changing, the belt isn't changing. The ammo pouches have changed. We've gone to the, well, at this stage, we're pretty much in the Mark III pouches there, um, which as we said earlier, they do sit in a slightly different position. They're a little bit larger as well. And the bayonet has changed to the um, uh, the, the, the number four bayonet. bayonet. The, the, yeah, the spike pig stick bayonet as well in the frog, which has changed. And the water bottle, again, is, is gone from a uh, blue enamel to a brown enamel, I believe it's. Yeah, it's, it's, a weird, it's, it's, it's a sort of greeny kind of mm. difficult to describe. Greeny grey colour. The um, I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly when it changed over, like, but not long after the BF period because you didn't often see them after that. No, and that's kept in the sleeve carry this time round as well, rather than that skeleton, which well, is. You, a, see, you still see the skeleton though. You still see the skeleton though. Although trying to get a a water bottle out the out the envelope type sleeve carrier. <laughs> God, yeah. what me? God, what sick, what sick individual uh, d- designed that? I mean, <laughs> do you know? I mean, I've the, often the thought Americans, this myself. Well, the Americans had the right idea with the lifted dots. You know, it's two lifted dots. You pull the water out, you have a drink, you put it back, and you click the water bottle. But God, oh mate, the dance! You know, the dance that you do to try and get oh a drink. Oh my God! Do you know what I found that trying to get the water bottle into the skeleton one? I yeah, I missed the hole a little bit when you walk in and trying to get it out of the other one. I just think if somebody just designed something that was a little bit in between, it would have been absolutely fine as well. Uh, other big difference as well, we've got a different gas mask and bag this time. We've also got a different entrenching tool this time. It wasn't a one-piece shovel. It was a fold away, which went onto the back of the uh, the belt there as well. So that was a little bit different, right? Um, and the, mark, the gas mark respirator bag, is it a Mark 8? Uh, the lightweight gas mask. Yeah, I might be wrong with it, Mark. But that's that's a green, that's a smallish sort of green bag, isn't it? Um, and the mask has changed to something which looks a lot more modern um, and different. It hasn't got this big old hose um, falling off it like like the previous ones used to do with a filter. It very much looks like a more modern type of gas mask as well. I think, it, I think it's the um, obviously they do different marks. I think it's the Mark Two. I know it sounds daft when you've had Mark Five mm. and Mark Six. I think it's a Mark Two lightweight. Because mm, you're probably right. It's a different. It's a different type of. You know, it's different. It goes in a belt usually, or or on a strap. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't really sit around your neck like the. Uh, no, it's a, it's a lot more practical, isn't it? Much um, more practical. I think. I think the lightweight started to be seen in '43, so probably you know most, if not all, of them would have had them before '44. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I've seen any sort of '44 pictures onwards of. Um, of previous respirator bags being used, I don't think by this point I mean, it would com- be completely impractical, wouldn't it? I think most of the ones that I've got in my collection are forty-three or forty-four dates. So I don't, you don't often see them later than that. I don't know what happened after that if they went to a different time. Because obviously after World War Two, my interest tends to wane. But the um, you can still get them. The actual you can actually buy the the Mark Two lightweight gas mask without the sorry the bag. Um, for about a tenner, you know, yeah, if you were yeah. buying one with a with a with a mask and a filter, probably maybe thirty quid. Um, yeah, cheapest chips, you know, cheapest chips. Like, so there shouldn't mm-hmm. be any reason why you shouldn't have the actual mask and the filter in it. Definitely, and like we mentioned earlier, just the bankos change at this point. Where we're down to, to KG three, which is a more Sort of greeny grey sort of colour tone as well. Um, very different. To KG3, that sort of yeah, that's, I, yeah. I think that's um, that was introduced in August forty three, I think, and mm. it was designated. I think it was KG three uh, dark, 
was his designation like so again because you obviously have medium you have light you have dark but people different people call it different things mm-hmm. uh, yeah and it's um i think one of the one of the big differences that we haven't touched on too much between bef and the later war years is the insignia um you you generally won't see you know in, in 44 we are seeing the the, the different colored arced insignias on, on the arm there as well so you know whether that be green howards or the, the northern fusiliers or you know the ox and bucks whatever that might be you're not seeing that at the bef there was very little insignia if any at that point there there was there was brass used there was there was cloth cloth arrows used well i was gonna say probably the only exception would be the 51st highland division who mm. specifically had a set of cloth recognition sign. So basically it was mm-hmm. a St Andrew's cross and felt in different colours. So for Seaforths mm-hmm. and Camerons, it'd be a scarlet cross. Uh, Gordon's used a green cross. Uh, Argyll's used a brown cross. We Below them, they had like either bars, the other cloths to like whatever battalion it was. And um, I think they were the only and the first to introduce that. Um, mm-hmm. but, but again, that's a whole different field as well. Because when we first started trying to find that information was almost impossible, and we had mm-hmm. to make the insignia ourselves. So I would recommend people to try and try and avoid doing fifty first things, unless yeah. again, unless they want to um, go on our fifty first living history group page, and we can send them the link to the information. Um, so yeah, some big differences in insignia as we go from that BEF uh, into later parts of the war there, and and you will find. Sort of ready-made reproduction sets from from some good suppliers out there all the time is one that makes sort of ready-made um, insignia kits for whichever unit that you want to make there as well. And there's lots of different nuances. Um, you know, they'll have the regiment, they'll have the division on there as well. Um, there's lots of lots of little bits and bobs of differences there as well. So make sure you're doing your research on those before you go and stick something on as well. There's always a bit of a debate between felt or printed patches as well. So, you know, do your research and look at some original imagery on that as well um like we mentioned there is a lot more nuances that we could have gone into i guess in this period of 41 to 44 in terms of you know italy the mediterranean greece crete malta um you know north africa we haven't touched upon the far east in in any shape or form you know because because don't forget <clears throat> in the far east there is the early war period there is the late war period as well uh singapore all that sort of stuff total different ball game um we're very much focusing on the european theater of operations here at the moment as well um and i guess lastly what we haven't really touched upon is the weapons um going into um going into the sort of 41 to 44 period as well so i guess the big thing in in 41 that the sort of stenmark one is introduced and and we're seeing i guess primarily the stenmark three and the stenmark four um used quite a lot um i guess sort of 43 onwards well yeah but i mean i think the standard would be your um again your redfield rifle which would be your uh mm-hmm. Number four, Mark One, um, mm-hmm. which again a g- great piece of kit. Um, you'd have your Brain Mark Two. I'm not sure exactly when the Brain Mark Three came in actually. Um, and what again? These things depend on what period you're actually doing. You need to study what weapons were used at particular times because again, there's no point having a a Mark Three in a, in a BEF scenario or a Mark Two and and vice versa. Although you could use the early ones late on, you can use a late item early on. It just wouldn't make any sense. No, definitely. Well, the, the, the Mark III was brought in sort of, I think it was mid, uh, mid-1944. I think by the time it saw action, I think it was probably the, the winter of 44 before that came in. But I guess, I guess again, to the to the young unseen eye, you know, the, the differences for most people between a Mark II and a Mark III were probably fairly slim. But, um, you know, again, I think try and get that right sort of date because there will be differences there for people. Oh, definitely. I mean, the thing is with us, I mean, it's impossible to know everything about every period and everything. I mean, what I would suggest to people is choose what you want to do and then try and concentrate and get the information on that particular thing you're trying to do. Because if you try and fill your head with every type of weapon, every type of weapon and colour and for things that you aren't going to do, you're just going to waste your time. So find what you want to do and then research it and concentrate on that period. And if you want to do another thing, fine. Concentrate on that thing rather than because you know there's only so much information you can take in. Um, and as I say, I mean, there's people out there that are experts on all subjects, but they, they've generally been at it for a long, long time. Um, and what I was going to say about the Mediterranean and things like that, there's people that you know and I know who are experts on jungle warfare and things like that. It might be worth in a future episode to get them on to discuss that particular kit because that is their field expertise mm-hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and we're not going to, like I said, we're not going to pretend that we're absolute experts in in any of these areas in particular. We're just trying to hear to, to help, a, to, to lend a helping hand to any beginners out there that may be looking at taking those first steps into the British field. And and hopefully we've uh, we've done that justice as well for people. But if anyone does have any, has, has any further questions that they want to ask us, feel free to reach out. Uh, you can find Dale um, on, on Facebook or you can find him on Instagram at Dark Attitude, I think is your Instagram tag as a deal. Uh, Dark Attitude 66 I think it is 66 you can find Dale there obviously reenactors ramble our wartime imaging for myself um, but obviously get your questions in we'd love to do some Q&A's um, we're going to do a follow up episode to this with Dale if uh, if Dale is still available um, where we're going to be looking a little bit more into the Gliderborn troops because there's a little bit of a difference there between the Gliderborn and the Airborne troops with the regular infantry um, some differences in weapons some differences um in uniform equipment there as well. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that in detail. And I guess um, for us, where we've been working a lot on our Southern Galloway Kings on Scottish Borderers impression, which is a, a Gliderborne battalion um, there as well, which took part in uh, Operation Market Garden. So we'll we'll do another episode um, very specifically looking at that battalion in particular as well, um, ahead of our uh, trip to Holland next September as well. What I was going to say before, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Richie. A couple of things that I meant to mention is if you're looking at um, the webbing and you want information, uh, the Khaki website, mm. um, I don't know if you've been on that's a fantastic yeah. site. I think uh, it's khakiweb.com. Khaki web. It's got an amazing amount of information on there. Um, and there's another one called Blanco and Bull, which has mm. loads of information on the Blanco. The Khaki website, I would say, if you're trying to put the web in together, that is yeah. absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Because otherwise you just will not know where to start, well. will you? The other thing is, well, people often, they get everything right, but they don't wear the web in properly. It just doesn't, it just doesn't sit properly. It just, they've just attached it together. There's loose bits at the back. The, the small pack's too low. So by, by all means, go into that site. I mean, it's free. And have a look at all the information there before you actually start going out with the kit. Um, it'll be it'll be an ideal um, uh, resource tool for you. Absolutely, and I would say use the use this period of sort of downtime. You know, we're just going into a another era of lockdown as we head into the new year there. But use this period to put together your impressions. Try on your impressions. Try on your webbing. Send pictures around some of the groups on Facebook with your colleagues and, and your fellow reenactors out there, um, and receive you know, constructive criticism openly and with grace to improve your own impression because ultimately we are there to uh, remember and pay tribute to those that paid the ultimate sacrifice. So, you know, don't be afraid of that criticism there. Um, you know, we do it regularly. I'm fairly new to some of the uh, the, the King's Own Scottish Borderers dress uniforms, you know, wearing tartan shoes and so on isn't my forte. So Dale has been, you know, quite openly constructive with with some of his feedback for me there. And it, it, it's taken, um, you know, very constructively for myself. And I think you ultimately need that attitude of being open to constructive criticism um, as well. So for any beginners out there, that's going to be a very strange thing when inevitably somebody tears you to bits because of the height of your webbing or are you wearing a slightly different uh, version of Vamo pouch or something similar, but um, you know, take that in its stride and, and I think he'd uh, Dale's warnings there and his research is sorry, his, uh, his advice on doing some research before purchasing um as I've mentioned, I've spent hundreds of pounds on things like auxiliary pouches when they weren't exactly what I needed there as well. So do double check before you make a purchase. Definitely. I was going to say, I mean, obviously when you're receiving criticism, it really depends how it's given. I mean, some people can be very smug, um, mm. which can, to be fair, can put a lot of people off. Um, so if you're going to advise somebody, you know, be kind. You know, I mean, if somebody's no one to listen to you, then you're wasting your time. But ultimately, we all started somewhere. You know, we've all got mm -hmm. that initial first event photograph where you just go, oh, my God, what the hell was I wearing? So mm -hmm. just remember that yeah. where, where you are now, that's not where you started. So be I kind agree. when you're giving advice. Fantastic, Dan. I think that's a really good sort of mantra and uh, and feeling to sort of uh, end this episode on. Um I think, as you mentioned there, you know, we, there's, there's lots of things we've openly discussed. It is it is it a mark so and so? Is it a mark so and so? When did something come in? You know, we aren't here trying to be absolutely accurate with every single thing we're saying. We're doing our best, but ultimately, with the intentions of helping new reenactors and helping to improve the hobby. And I think that ethos and mentality should be shared by uh, the rest of the reenacting community, like you mentioned, in giving feedback out there. Um, as you mentioned, none of us were perfect once. I think we look back at some of our impressions from years ago and look at where we are now. Um, I think you look at the level of research that we put in now versus what we used to do and you see how important it is 
and not everybody's going to start in that same way. So as you mentioned there, it's been a difficult year enough for everybody. We're going into a new year now. Let's be positive, let's be graceful, um, and let's be supportive and kind to those entering the hobby. And those alike who are entering new areas of the hobby, that might have been reenactors for, for some time as well. Definitely. And obviously, I wish everybody a happy new year when it arrives. Yes, absolutely. So right now, as we speak, I think we're about uh, six or seven hours there away from New Year. So hopefully we can get this live this evening for everybody to listen to. Um, but from uh, from myself, Dale, Andy, who's not with us this evening, uh, and all other friends, uh, guests and audience members from the Reenactors Ramble, we wish you an absolutely fantastic 2021. Let's hope that next year we get back to the hobby that we all love so much right across the world. Uh, and that we can meet a lot of you guys out there. We can continue the podcast. And thank you for all of your support. It's been a fantastic four months on the Reenactors Ramble so far. Um, just about to hit three and a half thousand listeners, which is absolutely fantastic. And who'd have thought that a, a silly idea uh, when I was driving down the A19 could reach so many people across the whole world. It's been fantastic to speak to some of you guys on Instagram, uh, on the on the podcast. And, you know, we're up to episode 22 now. Um, let's hope by the end of this year, we're up to episode 200 and that we've discussed absolutely everything and more. We keep this going as a bit of a central hub in the community as well. So once again, a happy new year from, from Dale and I, and we hope you all have a wonderful time. Don't get too drunk. Come into that, brother. <laughs>